We uh, continue on this morning in our series uh, about Joseph, uh, a young man who had really an incredible uh, set of circumstances around his life. And where we find him this morning, he, a kid of maybe, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years old. And I, I tried to think back to when I was 16 or 17 uh, or 18 years old, and it took a while to rewind the tapes that long and to get there. Um, and uh, I, I did the math, and that put me back somewhere around uh, 1987, uh, as I was just finishing up college, and in that year, uh, a movie came out called Fatal Attraction. And in this, yeah, so if you've seen it, you're kind of chuckling. In this movie, Michael Douglas plays this character. He's this guy, and he's successful, and he's married, and he gets into this situation where he's tempted by another woman, not his wife. And although he tries a little bit to fight off the temptation, he ends up getting involved with her, and that's where things end up going really south, because it turns out uh, this woman played um, frighteningly by Glenn Close, uh, turns out to be this absolute, complete psycho who ends up stalking him and stalking his family and killing the family pets and doing all kinds of just weird, bizarre stuff, and it turns into this weird kind of psycho, thriller, murder, weirdness that all began with a bad choice to get involved in a relationship uh, outside of his marriage. Uh, and his character at the end of the movie would say, gosh, um, if I'd have known then what I know now, I never would have gotten involved. And men across America said, that's it, you should never have an affair because it might be with some psycho who will come around and stalk you and kill your family pets. <laughs> Which is maybe not the best logic and the best reasoning, but it at least is a conclusion that we could live with, right? Well, the story of Joseph this morning, we come to the story of, uh, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39. And there are a lot of parallels here between Michael Douglas's character uh, and Joseph's. Uh, both of them are tempted sexually. And actually, I think that's where the similarities end. <laughs> See, sexual temptation is nothing that's new. Um, whether, you're, whether today you're married and it, at whatever level you're tempted to fool around outside of your marriage, or whether today you're not married, you find yourself single, uh, but tempted to be sexually active even before you would be married. Or in either case, whether you're married or whether you're single, you deal with the constant temptation of pornography and pervasive visual images of sexuality that seem to be so much a part of our culture. Sexual temptation is alive and well, and it is around us all of the time. And so we want to look at Genesis 39 this morning, the story of Joseph's temptation at the hands of Potiphar's wife, uh, because he was able to fight off that temptation successfully. Just to update the narrative from where we've been with Joseph, uh, when we last saw him, he was being sold to a bunch of slave traders by his brother, and they were on their way to Egypt. Well, that group of slave traders made their way to Egypt, and they sold their slaves, and, Jace, and Joseph was sold into the hands of a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar was, he's kind of a big deal. He was like the captain of the Pharaoh's guards, uh, he was kind of way up there in terms of po the power structure, uh, and he ends up purchasing Joseph, and he begins to give Joseph these different tasks. And it, he can't help but notice that every task that he gives to Joseph turns out to be taken care of very successfully and very effectively, very efficiently that way. This, this slave that he's purchased, this Joseph, this Hebrew, he seems to have the Midas touch. He just can't miss. And so, like any good manager or leader would do, he begins to give Joseph more and more responsibility, uh, more and more uh, room to maneuver, and Joseph continues to excel and to succeed. And eventually, he ends up promoting him to being his number two guy, the second in command in his whole home. 
So here again we see that although, um, although Joseph had been thrust into a kind of a difficult situation, God had bigger plans and he raised him up to a successful place and unexpected levels of success. And so we'll pick up the narrative in, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 39 in Genesis. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. She was a real master of subtlety. You know, kind of playing hard to get, playing it a little cagey, close to the vest, right? No. So here's Joseph, well-built and handsome, right? So right away, some of you have an easier time relating to him than the rest of us do, and that's okay. Um, and he's this young man, 18 years of old, uh, years of age, perhaps, faced with this very direct, very blatant, very in-your-face sexual temptation. And can I just say for a moment, speaking to the uh, 18 to 25-year-olds that are here, the young people. Um, I just want to say, I recognize you guys have it tough. You guys, I think, where sexual temptation is concerned may have it uh, tougher and more difficult than any of the rest of us have. And part of that's because our culture is so supportive of just a rampant do-whatever-you-want kind of sexuality. Believe it or not, people in my generation, when we grew up, there was kind of a sense that, yes, everybody may be out there having sex, but everyone agreed you probably shouldn't be. And there was at least a little bit of shame and a little bit of stigma and maybe even a little embarrassment if you got caught. And that's gone now. In the, in the culture at large, that's just not there. We have a culture in which there's no disapproval of rampant sexuality and where free sexuality is just celebrated as freedom. See, here's the deal. When I was 18 years old, the likelihood of somebody's wife walking up to me and saying, come to bed with me, was really limited. Really. <laughs> Not just because of kind of the dweeb that I was at the time. Not the dweeb that I would become. But just the nature of the culture in general, culture in general was not that direct. Today, offers like that just flood your inbox and your browser without you even having to go and looking for them. Right? The websites are out there that will, go, that will help you arrange your extramarital affair discreetly and comfortably. There are apps uh, for most of the smartphones that we carry that will tell you which people in a five-mile radius are prowling around looking for someone to hook up with right then and there. You don't have to go looking for this kind of blatant, in-your-face sexual temptation. It finds its way to you now. I didn't have to grow up with that. 18 to 25-year-olds, you do. You're in a tough spot. Joseph was that age. He receives this blatant, in-your-face temptation to sleep with his boss's wife. And his response to that temptation is very telling. Genesis says this, but he refused. He refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. And everything that he owns He's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. See, Joseph was able to stand strong in the face of this relentless, 
ongoing, blatant, in-your-face sexual temptation, and he didn't back down. And I don't know about you, but my experience with all manner of temptation is this. There are moments when I feel strong, and then there are moments when I feel weak. And the endless, relentless, ceaseless, ongoing temptation of one thing or another is tough to break and it's tough to beat. So if there's something to learn from Joseph about how to stand strong, if there's something that we can take away from his responses that helps us to refuse to give in to the lure of all kinds of temptations, I want us to learn that this morning. So what are the insights that we can learn from Joseph on how to avoid this fatal attraction of temptation and sexual temptation in particular? And the first lesson I think that we learned is simply this, that Joseph, despite all of his circumstances, managed to stay close to God. He stayed close to God. He kept his relationship with God up to date. See, regardless of his geographic location, his station in life, his current circumstances, Joseph seemed to keep his relationship with God a priority. And in the very moment the temptation was presenting itself, he was already instinctively processing that temptation through the grid of what, what do, how does my relationship with God impact my response to this temptation? See, here's the thing. The, the time to begin building that, the, the, the time to pay attention to your relationship with God, the time to begin getting close to God and to, to uh, have an up-to-date intimate relationship with God that breeds, breeds strength and confidence and self-control. The time to do that is not when you face temptation. It's long before. It's the day in, day out attention to our spiritual life. Time spent in God's word, time spent in prayer, time spent in worship. It's the doing of these things on a regular basis and the daily loving of God and drawing close to him that make us strong and ready for those moments when the temptation gets up in our face. When James was writing to the church thousands of years later, he said this. He said, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. I love, I love that passage. I love the idea of the devil and temptation fleeing from me. But there's an interesting picture in there that part of, part of um, resisting the devil and having the temptation flee from me has to do with me drawing near to God. Because I just, if I just decide I'm going to stand out and stand against temptation all by myself, in my own strength and in my own power, I'm not a very imposing figure. And temptation can be strong, and it can be powerful, and it can be relentless, and it can wear me down. And before long, as I stand by myself, I'm not much, much match for temptation. But James says that if I will draw close to God, then God will draw close to me. And, and when I stand against temptation, I'm not just standing in my strength, but I'm standing with my big buddy next to me in his strength. And it's not just my wimpy, poorly developed self-control and character which stands against temptation. It is the power of Almighty God standing beside me and emerging from within me that confronts that temptation. And in the face of that, the devil will flee and temptation along with it. When God's alongside me, it makes a big difference. So Joseph knew the lesson to say, look, if I'm going to be ready for whatever temptation happens to, be, to come, I need to, be, I need to be building and growing in my relationship with God right now. Here's what else Joseph understood. 
Joseph understood all of the impacts of his private sexual choices. He understand, he said, look, if I take you up on this offer, this would be disloyal to my master, and it would be disloyal to my God. And the big lie that was part of that temptation, which, by the way, is the same big lie that's a part of every temptation, is this. It's okay. Nobody will ever know. No one will know. But even at, even at this young age, Joseph has wisdom enough to understand that regardless of whether anybody finds out or not, regardless if the truth comes out or not, regardless whether anyone discovers it, this that giving in to sexual temptation is going to have a widespread impact, whether it's discovered or not. The truth is this, that when married people cheat, the ripple effect of that betrayal goes on and on and on further than anyone ever expects or imagines. Because the infidelity and the betrayal, it changes who they are, and it reduces their ability to be trusted. And because of that, it also reduces their ability to trust. And that affects the marriage, and the damage to the marriage affects the kids, and that affects the way the kids can grow and trust and be trusted. And it affects the kids' view of marriage and the possibility for success, and it breaks up friendships, and it divides loyalties, and as family friends hear the news and find out and they take different sides on what happened and why or what are the reasons, it divides those loyalties. And soon there is stress on the marriages of the friends and neighbors as they're just standing in and trying to help, and the ripple effect goes on and on and on. so that the sexual sin and the damage that it does in marriages is extensive beyond just the initial relationship. Again, I just want to address something specifically to those of you uh, who are single this morning. And maybe you're part of that 18 to 25 group, uh, or maybe you're older than that group, uh, for, and for whatever reason you're single. But I just want to say this, that the Bible teaches very clearly that sexually speaking, we are designed and created to belong to just one person. And that one person is our spouse. So that sexual activity outside of marriage, and that includes before marriage and during the marriage and after the marriage, sexual activity outside of marriage is outside of God's design. It's outside of his plan. It's outside of his intention. And it's outside of his instruction. There's a simple little word for that. It's called sin. It's not good. So I want to talk to a moment for those of you who are single and are trying to live your life the way that God instructs you to. You're trying to honor God in your choices, in the way you play out your relationships, and in the way that you conduct yourselves. The Bible presents clearly that the boundary for sexual activity is marriage, and that sex outside of that marriage relationship is prohibited, and that it's displeasing to God. But it's so tempting, right? It is so tempting. And regardless of how much you love God and regardless of how much you want to please Him, there is something so tempting and so flattering to think about that perhaps I am so desirable to that other person that they would even lay aside their own sexual boundaries just because they love me so much. And the temptation and the lure and just the natural desire are so overwhelming. But here's the thing that I want to call to all of our attention that the way that you handle sexual boundaries before you're married tends to be the way that you handle sexual boundaries after you are married as well. The boundaries become different, but the way that we handle them tends to be the same. Are you single here today? Let me ask you a question. What message do you want to send to your future spouse? Do you want to say to your future spouse, 
My sexual boundaries are only loosely enforced, and my passion tends to take me into sexual situations that I know are out of bounds. This will likely continue once I am married. I am an excellent candidate to cheat on my spouse at some point in the future. Is that the message you want to send to your future spouse? It's the message you send by being active sexually prior to marriage. Or, or perhaps here's a, a better message, a, better, a message closer to our heart, something a little closer to the message that we want to send and ought to send. My sexual boundaries are well-defined. And though I am tempted, with God's help, I overcome sexual temptation, and I live within the sexual boundaries that God has established. This also will continue whenever I get married. I am an excellent candidate to remain faithful to my spouse throughout our marriage. Now, there is a message that we can get behind, and there's one of the many messages we send when we reserve sexuality for its rightful place within the marriage. That's why when we ask, uh, when, that's why when couples come to us and ask us to do their weddings, we say yes. And we require them to commit to sexual purity in the weeks and the months leading up to the wedding. It's because we want them to enjoy a lifetime of sexual purity with one another within their marriage, without ever looking outside the boundaries of their marriage for any kind of fulfillment or pleasure or attention or anything else. And so we ask them to do during their engagement period what they will need to be able to do throughout their marriage, and that is to say no to sexual temptation, to exercise some self-control over some God-given biological drives and urges, and to honor God's plan in the way that they treat one another. And some of you may be saying, well, I don't really care what God says about my sexual life, and I'm not really that interested in what the Bible says about that. Or you may say, I love God, but my sex life is none of his business. It's not something I'm ready to turn over to him right now. And if that's you, um, and, and the statement of your life is that it, where your sexuality is concerned is that God is not the boss of me, I want to say, lucky you. This is not something that you have to live up to. And, and frankly, I, uh, I greatly respect and admire the honesty of people who are willing to say, I disagree with the Bible's teaching. I'm not willing to let it rule me where I disagree with it, and so I'm going to live my life the own way. I think that's very honest. And if the Gospels teach us anything about Jesus, it's that he actually got along better with honest sinners than he did with hypocritical saints, right? So if you don't have interest in following God's plan for your life, be honest about that and say that's what it is. But if you're one who is saying, I'm trying to follow Jesus, I'm trying to follow God's pattern for my life and live out what the Bible teaches is the best way, this is it. And it's hard, but it's doable with the help of God. Here's something else that we learned from Joseph in the way that he handled this temptation. It's that Joseph prepared his thinking and his responses in advance. In the moment of temptation, with the boss's wife coming and saying, come to bed with me, um, it's pretty clear that his response was well thought out. It had to do with holiness. It had to do with his relationship with God. It had to do with a gratitude for the way that his master had, had treated him and a, and a sense that he wouldn't betray that master's loyalty. He had thought through a lot of things. He knew in advance that if sexual temptation came his way, he was going to say no. Not because just that's how he felt about it in that moment, but because he'd come to that conclusion based on some convictions that he'd held for a very long time. This, this is something, this is not just about sexual temptation. This is about all temptation, which is to say, are we, are we deciding in advance how, how we will respond when the opportunity to get ahead by dishonest means presents itself? 
Are we deciding in advance, in advance that we will honor God with our words, with our actions, with our conduct, and with our deeds? Joseph was prepared, and so he was ready. Here's, here's another item, um, and it's one that we need to learn as well, and that's that Joseph uh, rejected every opportunity to justify and to rationalize. He rejected every opportunity. And, and boy, justification and rationalization, we do that really well, don't we? I mean, we're really good at writing ourselves the permission slip because of whatever extenuating circumstances. There are some parts of the Egyptian culture in which um, Joseph, as the slave to Potiphar, was also subject to the commands of Potiphar's wife. He could have written it off as, hey, you know, culturally, I think I'm supposed to do what the boss's wife says. He could have. You know, there are many commentators, it's very interesting as I, as I was reading and doing some studying on this, so many of the commentators pointed to the various weaknesses in Potiphar himself. He seemed to be only uh, interested in his own self and in the food that he would eat. He seems to have offloaded and delegated an awful lot of responsibility to Joseph that might have been his to handle. There, um, there are some scholars who think that perhaps there was some kind of uh, sexual dysfunction or maybe even kind of, uh, some kind of ritual religious commitment to not have kids at all. And so this is a case of just poor, childless Potiphar's wife just trying to do her obligation and start a family of some kind. I mean, even our biblical scholars are trying to find the ways to rationalize and justify what's not rationalizable or justifiable, right? The bottom line is this. Joseph could have chosen those or any other number of justifications, and he didn't. He said, they don't apply. I know what's right. I know what's good. I know what's pure. And I am standing for that. If we want to be able to stand in the face of in-your-face temptation like that, we, we have to know there, there's no justifying and rationalizing that we can allow. And, and finally, I just want to hit this point because it's pretty important. It's that Joseph sustained his refusal to give in. It says, day after day, she was in his face offering herself to him. And day after day after day, he, to the extent that it was possible given his role in the house, he refused to be with her as much as he could, and he just kept saying no. He kept saying yes to God, and he kept saying no to her. And then, one day, the, the scripture tells us, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. And, and isn't that the place where temptation tends to look for us? In those places where all the safety measures and securities and, and protections that we put in place when, when they're not around, when things are most weak and most vulnerable, most circumstantial? She, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. And here we learn a lesson from Joseph that I think is critically important as well. That there comes, where temptation is concerned, there comes a time simply to run away. She, 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 she held him by the cloak, and so he dropped it and he ran away. Once again, here's this robe, this cloak. Sign of his position, sign of his authority, sign of his standing, and sign of his power, and he chooses to drop it. He chooses to let go rather than to give temptation anything to hold on to. Can I ask you... Where is it that temptation grabs onto you? What, what's the cloak in your life that temptation grabs onto and says, come participate with me? Is it a computer or some kind of device that you begin browsing or looking at when bored and lonely? 
Is it a bottle that you turn to, a substance that you ingest or inject, whether it's legal or not in the state of Washington? <laughs> is it a person other than, their, than your spouse, someone that you turn to for understanding, for comfort, for appreciation? Maybe it's nothing physical yet, but it's, it's still a place where temptation lays hold of you. Where are the places that various temptations begin to get their hooks in you personally? It's going to be different for all of us, but we've all got them. And what Joseph did is very telling. That very thing that had hold of him, he said, I'm going to drop it, leave it, and run away. I'll simply say this, in line with that, if, if, you, can't, if you can't say no to pornography on your computer, then get rid of the computer. If, if you can't stay off certain websites or, or use certain apps that take you in dangerous places sexually, then get rid of the smartphone. I can't live without my smartphone. I think you can. You did for a lot of your life before. Many of us did. At the end of the day, it really comes down to priority, right? Joseph says the word, said the words, I won't be disloyal to, pot, to my boss, neither will I be disloyal and sin against God by participating in this. And so he literally took the thing that demonstrated his power and his position, and he left it in her hands and said, I want nothing to do with that thing that's used to get its hooks into me. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hands and had run out of the house, she called the household servants and said, look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. She flips the script. She turns it around on him, and she accuses him of making advances on her. She, she accuses him of the very thing that she was trying to instigate and initiate. And then she tells the same story to her husband, who is understandably upset when he hears it, and he's got a tough choice whether to believe his wife or whether to believe the servant. And uh, he chose to believe his wife and throws Joseph in jail. You'd like to think, wouldn't you, that like integrity and self-control and obedience to God and resisting temptation and fighting off and doing the right thing just always leads to triumph and victory and party and a celebration and kind of getting promoted into the good places and the good life, right? There's something that feels just and right and fair about that. That's not Joseph's experience. And I would be willing to bet that for many of us here, that's not been our experience either. I know there are those times when we have done the right thing, and we've done what we can to fight off temptation. And, and, and at, with varying levels of success, we've done that, and instead of getting uh, the applause and the appreciation and the respect that maybe those efforts we feel deserve, things just continue to go south. And it can be very very frustrating. Joseph finds himself back in prison. Instead of the applause he deserved, all he heard is the silence and loneliness of a cell. And he's there, ironically enough, specifically because he did the right thing. If you've been there, if you've done the right thing and then had to pay the price because of it, you know the injustice of that and of that feeling. I'm really excited that that's not the end of the Joseph story. I'm really excited that we can come back next week um, and, and see how it is that God meets Joseph in that situation and speaks into it. 
But this week, in the here and now, as we're talking about temptation generally and sexual temptation specifically, please know that even if you're doing a great job of the temptation front, you may not win the awards, you may not get the accolades. Life might continue on a southbound journey for a little while. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy that says, see, God doesn't care, see, God didn't notice, see, it's not worth all the effort. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Here is the truth. God is with you in the journey. If you honor him in the way that you journey, he will honor you as well. Let's pray. God, I'm really thankful that the next verse and the one that maybe we spend some time on coming up is that in the middle of, uh, in the, middle of the prison, you are with Joseph. And God, we are here this morning as a people who need you to be with us. God, we are a people who, just like Joseph, face temptations of all kind. God, most of us uh, face the, the sexual temptations that just get thrown at us from every direction in this culture in which we live. God, would you strengthen us? God, would you solidify in us a heart that is to follow you and to please you, to honor you. And God, as we took communion earlier and symbolically we said that the body and the blood of Christ that were broken, they cleanse me of sin. God, we also recognize they empower us to righteousness and freedom as well. God, would you empower us? Empower us to say yes to you. God, would you keep us so busy saying yes to you that we don't even notice along the way that we're having to say no to other things? Lead us and guide us in that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.